0: everyone. Welcome to Sundays with Saima. This podcast is made for aspiring otolaryngologists to learn from trainees and professionals in the field. I'm your host, Saima Wase, fourth-year medical student at Northeast Ohio Medical University. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kevin Contrera, Head and Neck Surgical Oncology Fellow at MD Anderson Cancer Center. He earned his medical degree and Master's of Public Health from Johns Hopkins University. He then went on to complete his residency at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Contrera, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm pleased to have you here.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm beyond, and I'm always, uh, as you were saying earlier, uh, willing and happy to help anyone from uh, uh, NeoMed. So I appreciate what you're doing for med students across the country. I think it's a great idea, and I'm uh, fortunate to contribute.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about your path to otolaryngology?
1: Yeah, so when I was a med student, I um, thought, you know, surgery was something that I was very interested in. And I had spent some time uh, at the Cleveland Clinic and had done some missions in cardiothoracic surgery. And I really loved the cardiothoracic surgeons I know, but I had also thought to myself, um, maybe that's not exactly uh, where you know, the type of uh, surgeon or surgeon I wanted to be. So I was sort of approaching medical school from that perspective. And I actually knew absolutely nothing about otolaryngology when I started. And we had this lecture on uh, cochlear implants uh, that was done by uh, John DeParker, who was the head of essentially hearing at uh, Hopkins when I was there. And I had a grandfather who was simultaneously struggling with his hearing aids. He was. Uh, profoundly hard of hearing and he always had cerumen impactions. So, you know, they wouldn't, um, you know, fit and then he wouldn't wear them. And anyways, so I reached out to Dr. Naparko after the lecture to, you know, ask about candidacy for my grandfather. And then he uh, was like, Oh, you seem really interested. Why don't you come join me in clinic? And then clinic led to OR. And then I really just saw the whole, um, impact that he was able to have on patients from a quality of life standpoint. And that's definitely mm-hmm. true for all of otolaryngology, where it's not just, you know, your ability to help someone hear, but to help them smile, to help them speak, to mm-hmm. help them swallow. These are all very meaningful things that even to this day as now a cancer surgeon. I, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, focused on when a patient, you know, comes into the office.
0: Right. And now as a cancer surgeon, you're not only dealing with quality of life, but also improving quantity of life. So what attracted you to head and neck surgery?
1: Yeah, you know, there's um, there's nothing more, I think, meaningful than being able to treat someone's cancer. I think it's often patients are among their most vulnerable and trusting and and you're able to make what I would say the biggest impact on their lives. And so when I was uh, training, it was even really before I was spending much time in the operating room, although obviously the anatomy and the surgeries are really cool. Um, Just being in clinic with one of my mentors, um, Brian Berkey, I remember he'd be there till, you know, six, even seven at night, um, just trying to help a patient sort through their, you know, recent diagnosis i and I would come home and I would just be so energized by um the time I would spend uh with him and um just be you know really excited to do it all again the next day and I thought to myself that that's obviously um the path for me um and still to this day I feel absolutely you know energized to wake up and even though it's early in the morning to go around and it's often the most demanding of. The specialties within otolaryngology, but I think it certainly is the most rewarding um, if you're, you know, willing to commit yourself to the betterment of patients.
0: Right, and the fact that you're excited waking up every morning, going to a job that is that demanding, says a lot about how you feel about the field. And I think a lot of the head and neck surgeons that I've met do share that sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, going back to kind of your medical school days, you were heavily involved in the AMA. How did that influence you at an early stage in your career?
1: Yeah, so I was always interested in policy, even when, like in college and stuff, I was uh, in student government. And um, I've always sort of had a um, big picture perspective on things. It's part of what I think drives a lot of my research thinking and, um, kind of work that, uh, sort of answers to my daily patient care, but it helps, I think, make me a better, uh, clinician. And so the AMA seemed like an obvious option, you know, they had come to give like a presentation or something, maybe my second, uh, first or second year. And, um, I, uh, I was like, cool, let's go to a, a meeting. I think it was like in New Orleans or something like that. And then when I got there, I saw a lot of the good work that was being done from a policy perspective, because a lot of the big changes that you see, uh, certainly on a national stage, but actually even on a state level, there's sometimes even more you can get done from a health policy standpoint. And I just felt like that. I just always kind of gravitated towards that. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up... Um, kind of working my way and um, serving on a number of um, committees and leading um, groups of students and a lot of like advocacy efforts at the time um, the big push was to try to cut funding for graduate medical education which is the way that residencies are mostly funded Mm -hmm. Um, if you think about even though you know, there's plenty of residency spots and they're partially paid for by the hospital. Actually, the, the spots themselves, half of them are paid for by the federal government. And they had, uh, they there's pretty much been a cap on those since like the mid-90s. And so uh, we kind of led a big effort to get involved and try to um, prevent those spaces uh, and funding from being cut. So it's that kind of stuff that I was just felt uh, very interested in and engaged with.
0: It's great. It's another part of your career that um, not a lot of people have an interest in. Um, and you also earned your MPH, I believe, between your third and fourth year of medical school. What drove you to pursue that?
1: Yeah, it, a similar thought process is that, you know, I, I, I um, as much as I, I derive the largest part of, I think, my motivation from individual patient care, I think from an intellectual standpoint i'm very drawn to improving health outcomes for you know patients who i might not never necessarily have the privilege of meeting and so you know a public health degree aligned with aligns with that well my mph happened to be in epidemiology and biostatistics which was more aligned with uh, building sort of clinical research expertise Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, I was fortunate, able to get it sort of through an NIH, um, grant for clinician scientists, um, to kind of, uh, you know, pave that way. And it was just that, you know, one, one more year of the delayed gratification that everyone listening (laughs) is probably, um, dealing with. So i someone told me the opportunity cost, um, which was much more than I expected, but Nevertheless, it seemed like a reasonable sacrifice at the time, and I'm, it really has actually served me well and, I think, put me in a position to um, do better and more meaningful work, work going forward.
0: Right, and you have been very successful in your research, and you have won multiple research awards, including Best Oral Presentation Award twice at the academy meeting. In 2015 and 2019, um, what advice do you have for students for preparing a strong oral presentation?
1: Non-stop um, practice. So it's the same. If you're giving a best man speech at your brother's wedding, or you're giving a podium lecture to you know 300 otolaryngologists, um, I think being able to um, Orate a story without necessarily having to um, rely on you know slides or you know whatever it may be, and most of that has to do with practice. You know, obviously, doing good research is a foundation for that, but um, you know, when it comes to actual podium presentation, it has more about your ability to uh, tell a story in a meaningful and engaging way, and that's really what research. You know, good research is, you know, so I think some of the most brilliant scientists uh, still struggle to get, I think, attention to their work because they're not able to, you know, apply it to people's daily lives. And so, for example, a lot of that work um, that you referenced uh, was, you know, I was doing my master's of public health and I had mentioned my interest in um, he- hearing loss.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, it
1: was working um to really demonstrate the impact of hearing loss on uh, patients, which is something that for a long time was sort of just thought of as a normal part of aging, right. uh, which is part of why, you know, only one out of every five adults with hearing loss have a hearing aid and why most people just think, oh, well, that's just grandma, grandpa, he, he or she, they just Kind of like they choose to like be in the corner by themselves, and and but in reality, that's not what they're choosing. They're just not able to engage because they're not able to hear, and so it can lead to cognitive decline and early dementia and all those types of things that um, are uh, very concerning to folks.
0: Absolutely, and that isolation can lead to a lot of depression. So, I think that is very interesting work and a part of why a lot of students are interested in ENT. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any other advice for students interested in otolaryngology that we didn't already cover today?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the best otolaryngologists are um, people who are doctoring for the right reasons. I think people who are in the field for uh, the sake of, you know, serving others, I think they'll find themselves um, well-fitted within otolaryngology. Um, you know, people talk a lot about quality of life, but I think someone who, um, is willing to, you know, commit themselves, um, and finds great joy in helping others, you know, find joy. That's, that's what a lot of otolaryngology is. Uh, I think those types of people will be well-suited within the field. And as long as, um uh, I think you should, you know, invest in those things and, um, you know, explore what surgeries and things that you find really cool, but focus, I think, most on, you know, what um, gives meaning. And, um, you know, for those who are looking to be involved in the field and take on leadership positions or do research, I think seek out those things that, um, you know, bring you joy and you find meaningful and, and then the, you know, the awards and things like that will come uh, to hopefully soon to be matching for some of you uh, and all that stuff will come, I think, uh, secondarily.
0: That's great. Um, So we covered a great deal about your path to ENT, your interest in policy and research, and we heard a great piece of advice from you about finding joy in your career and maintaining that in order to be successful in otolaryngology. So this concludes this Sunday's episode of Sundays with Saima. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Contrera, and to all of my listeners for tuning in. See you next Sunday.